welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Matthew Gold and Braden Pozeshki. They are co-founders at Unstoppable Domains. And we also have our guest, Philippe Castonguay. Philippe is the director of product at Horizon, a blockchain games company. I'm really excited to talk to him more about that. So, hey, Philippe, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Great. So to start off, why don't you just tell us how did you get into the crypto and blockchain space in the first place? So I fully joined in 2017, mainly on the Ethereum side. Before that, I was mostly doing research and statistics and neuroscience. And I just fell in love with the complexity of these systems that we could build and lived on their own. Reminded me a lot of my prior research and I just became obsessed with it since then. And that's that's how I transitioned. Got it. So when you first got into the space, how did you go about learning more about this very foreign concept? So the very first time I was introduced to Bitcoin was really early on. So I think the concept was kind of always in the back of my mind. So I can't really put a finger on when I really understood or grasped it. But I think what really helped me was when I started thinking of Ethereum and all the possible applications, I was reading Reddit obsessively and seeing the different types of application that people were starting to build and think of, I think really helped me understand the potential. But even then, it probably took me, you know, an additional couple of months, six to 12 months to really start full, fully grasp the potential of, of blockchain. And then today in 2021, we've got a lot more resources out there for beginners to learn about Ethereum and blockchain and crypto. Do you have any favorite sources, whether they're blogs or people on Twitter or, you know, groups on Reddit that you would recommend people go to to learn more? Yeah, well, specifically for Ethereum, I mostly follow what's happening on Ethereum, but Ethereum Week News by Evan, and there's, I don't have a specific newspaper that I follow personally. I mostly get my information actually on Discord channels where the Discord, the Discord for the ETH research is my favorite. Ethereum.research and with the CH is after the dot, it's a kind of awkward spelling, but this is a really good one for keeping up to date with the latest Ethereum core development uh, research. Yeah, these are these are the things I try to mainly keep up with. And I use uh, the DeFi and for uh, everything related to DeFi. For sure. And when you try to explain the space to maybe your friends or people you meet who are new to all of this, what? how do you explain it to them to get them excited about it? Do you guys want the one sentence version or three minutes, but it's pretty comprehensive? Whatever you want. Okay. Well, the explanation I like to give is Imagine we are the four of us, you know, we have a spreadsheet, each have a spreadsheet on our computer and we each have $100 on that spreadsheet. So I have my name, $100, Diana, $100, Matthew, $100. And then if we want to update this, we each have to agree on what that change has to be. So if I want to say, I'm going to transfer you 10, I let's get on a Zoom call. And I, you know, you guys recognize my face, recognize my voice. We ignore the defects and all. And you say, okay, Philip wants to transfer it to Dana 10. Let's all upgrade our spreadsheet, right? This is 
basically what Bitcoin is, but instead of having, you know, four spreadsheets, it's, it's in the entire world. And it's, instead of using Zoom calls to authenticate the request, we use cryptography. And Ethereum is a bit further is instead of having a single spreadsheet with just a single numbers of transfers and single rules of how to update these values, we can have multiple spreadsheets, a balance of cow, a balance of dogs, a balance of whatever, but not only numbers, but you can start having data such as this specific Philip has an image and that image is this specific image. And now the interesting part is the only way to for the network to agree on changing that is for all the people involved to change their local copies. And there's two ways of doing that. One is, again, I convince the rest of the network, which is either in the spreadsheet example, me calling you and you acknowledging that I am the one requesting to transfer my funds or updating my image. But in the case of blockchain, it's cryptography. And uh, the other way is would be to corrupt your local copy either by exploiting your computer personally. Four people is achievable, but when you have a blockchain, this is really where the security comes in, where there's so many participants that forcing the changes manually is, is or maliciously is practically impossible. And this is where the security of blockchain comes in. Got it. I like that explanation. It's very easy to understand. And so what would you say are some of the main things that are preventing people from joining the space? I think today, like almost all of it is really user experience. And especially in the last few months with NFTs, one thing that a lot of people realize is that there's a lot of mainstream users that are ready for blockchain-like applications. And I think Topshot is probably one of the best example. For Topshot, for those who are not familiar, it's this NBA card collectible NFT platform. It's on the Flow blockchain. And they racked up something like 200,000 users in a very, very short period of time of tens of thousands of users on a daily active users, which is really high for any types of application. It's not just for blockchain application. And these people don't have technical knowledge of how blockchain works. They also, most of them don't understand the benefits of blockchain and or the risks involved. And to me, that was a really good example of what's really missing is just a good user experience and good applications more than anything. I think there's plenty of technologies, even on Ethereum that are are there to enable this kind of experience, but it's just gonna take a little more work for most applications to be really user-friendly. So I was actually gonna, I was actually gonna uh, shift gears a little bit. I actually wanna talk about some of the current projects that you're working on. I know you're working on Horizon and Skyweaver, which is a game. And I'm actually just kind of curious, tell us a little bit about uh, the projects you're working on now. And then also for people listening out there, I'd like to hear what do you think are the superpowers for blockchain uh, based games, what makes them, you know, be, you know, like you have normal games and you have blockchain based games. What's the superpower for blockchain games in your view and what you guys are working on over there? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, the game we're building is called Skyweaver. Uh, Skyweaver is a trading card game. And for those who are familiar with card game, we try to aim between uh, Hearthstone and Magic the Gathering in terms of complexity. The, the approach we took, and I think more and more games are, are starting to do that, that build on blockchain is we are a game first and blockchain second. So we don't put blockchain front and center. We actually try to hide it as much as possible in the user experience of our users, which pushed us to develop a lot of additional tools and infrastructure, uh, such as a wallet and other things to really make it so that the game is, you know, the first thing that players encounter. In fact, we have about uh, currently about 40,000 users, maybe a couple of close to a thousand daily active users. And most of them are not blockchain users. They're they're gamers, and this is really what we're trying to focus on. 
of course, being a blockchain games, one of the you know most interesting aspects is what what kind of economy can can blockchains enable in games. And this is something that we are we haven't released our full design of our economy yet, but uh, we plan on launching in the coming months. So for those interested, you guys will be able to see the economy. But yeah, the the idea is to have both a free-to-play experience where more money does not make you a better player, but also have you know a high a high end of tier or a long tail of of very rare collectibles that are associated with that. And that's for uh, Skyweaver. And in terms of what what powers blockchains provide for games, I think there's many. And my perhaps favorite one is really that economies in gaming today are really similar to economies of, of barter economies or even very, very like primitive of just pure uh, transactional economies where I purchase this for X amount and you purchase that for X amount. And this has been the case for perhaps the last 20 years where that's what the economies for gamings are, which is really far from what the traditional finance is in the real world or real economies, right? And one thing that I'm personally really interested in for using blockchain in video games is what are the new financial tools that suddenly becomes available to our, to the players? What are the financial services that suddenly become available to the players that are not possible or haven't been created yet in these gaming economies? And to give examples, of course, there's trading and the security, which is convenient, but you can also start having, well, what if you know, there's a company or an entity that wants to build a lending service where instead of players purchasing their asset from the producer, maybe they can go on that lending service and borrow assets for a day. Maybe in a card game, you just want to try a specific deck or you want to try a specific list of cards. You can just borrow it for a day, for an hour, for one match. And you can have services that provide that. Maybe there's other things. Maybe you can have suddenly a, a way of shorting or going along on specific assets. And how does that impact the economy of games? Well, it, you know, one of the hypotheses behind leverage trading is that shorting or going along helps with price discovery, making sure that the asset reached the price they're supposed to reach uh, faster. So does that make it so that really bad assets drop in price faster to protect the users, long assets, so, so these are two examples, but I, I really think there's plenty more. You can have indexes of funds. If you guys have heard of NFTX, which is something I, I haven't really thought about, but you can have indexes of assets, of in-game assets. And to me, all these are interesting, but what's the most interesting is really that these also are for the users, right? The players have now access to all these financial services and we don't really know how, how it's going to benefit them in the long term. Yeah, I actually, so just to bring this back up for users, you're ba what you're basically describing is that just the fact that users can own these assets now, there's going to be all sorts of tools built for these users that they're going to be able to get more out of the game, even outside of the game experience that you guys designed. So I'm actually, if you don't mind, NFTX, I actually think that's pretty interesting. And that is... I actually have not looked too deeply into that. Uh, and they're basically creating index funds for different blockchain assets that people are depositing. Is that an accurate description from what you understand? Uh, yep. within, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Cool. Mm -hmm. And and so that's another thing too. <laughs> like I remember buying Warcraft gold, right? So like, and just thinking about being able to take all these in-game items that I'm having and then I, and maybe depositing in them some contract and borrowing against them. It's wild, but I think that it's, 
it's, I mean, it's happening already. And there's all sorts of interesting interactions there. My next question is, who's actually using this right now, <laughs> right? Who, who do you see as the blockchain game users? There must be just really people really deep in the Ethereum space. And then if you're going to project out, how long is it going to take for, you know, what are you seeing the growth rate for these blockchain games these and game items? Yeah, I think most, especially Ethereum-based games, but most games today are uh, slightly more on the you have to pay in order to play. There's very little free-to-play game, which I think gates uh, or only really enables users that are familiar with blockchain to participate. Dapper Lab, with their flow, Top Shelf, Top Shot game is, it's not really a game. They say it's going to convert into a game. It's kind of like a counterexample where people can purchase their assets with credit cards. And I would assume most people are not blockchain enthusiasts. We, you see a lot of people that are brand new to blockchain that join because uh, of Top Shot. So I think more and more you're going to start seeing less and less blockchain native people participate in these games. But I think in order to really push that front forward, companies and projects need to build a game first and and that integrates blockchain more than the the counterpart. And that means, you know, ha- bringing in free-to-play games, which are probably the easiest way to onboard people to, to this blockchain blockchain games. If there's a path for free-to-play users, then I think uh, you're going to start seeing the percentage of non-blockchain users to blockchain users start to increase quite significantly. Got it. Well, uh, so just for users out there, just trying to frame this as in the discussion, there's so many buzzwords here. So like gaming and NFTs are essentially can go hand in hand. And Philippe was saying that there's actually a lot of stuff that you need to build for a game to make it so users don't even have to be worried about the fact that they're interacting with a blockchain. Like you guys built a wallet, you did all this extra work here so that people don't even know it. But when you're actually creating these blockchain-based assets, which everyone's, you know, everyone's very excited about NFTs now, but you can create these assets like NFTs that you can then move around into other places. And I think that that's, that's pretty neat. And I think you had a good insight there, which is if you're building a game, majority of your time is still building the game, right? That's like the, the number one thing that you're going to be doing. And the blockchain is just a component of this that increases the value for users who are interacting with your game. So it's a way for you to make your game more valuable. And right now, um, what you're seeing is mostly people with these paying to buy these types of things. And we'll see how this evolves. Maybe this could be cool as we move in, into free. So one of the topics I wanted to transition to, you have quite a active Twitter, or at least I follow it. And I'm a big fan. So if you're out there, you should definitely follow Philippe on Twitter. And we wanted to get into some of these more like crypto-based problem questions here. So the first one that's on the mind of everyone right now is kind of is scaling. So I just want to ask you, what's your opinion on scaling you know, the scalability, the issues that we're facing on Ethereum and, and the network at large, I, I think is probably the best place to start. So I think just maybe to provide more context, Ethereum only has about 20, 25 transactions per second. This goes down depending on the types of transactions. So there are some assets that are more expensive to transfer, which means less per, per second. Uh, this is really problematic because, well, there's, as you guys uh, might have noticed by the gas prices in on Ethereum or their cost for transactions. It's extremely, extremely expensive. We're looking at small trades costing hundreds of dollars, which prevents normal people or, or non-wells to really participate on, on projects that are on Ethereum. And the scaling, this is called the scaling problem, right? And and there's a lot of people and projects that try, to, uh, that try to solve this. One thing that I think is often misunderstood is that even if you have something that gives you a 10x or 100x, I don't think that's sufficient. Projects 
and this is true for Ethereum, but other projects, if you claim to only have 10x more transactions than Ethereum or, or 100 times more than Ethereum, eventually you're going to face similar issues than what Ethereum is facing today. And, and the, the reason is that a lot of people look at perhaps Visa transactions per second, right, as a benchmark of how many transactions a blockchain needs to achieve to support global economy. But Visa is a tiny fraction of all types of, of valuable asset that gets transferred. You need a lot more than achieving Visa in order to to properly scale. And this is where the biggest challenge comes because almost none of the existing blockchain, or at least the ones that are considered decentralized and secure, none of them really get even close to that scale. And this is why a lot of people are, especially this year in the last six months, a lot more people are looking into how can we have a network of blockchains or a network of chains that communicate with one another. And different chains, perhaps one is a side chain, another one is a layer two. And I can go into the distinctions if you guys are interested, but some of these have different properties, different security trade-offs. Some will be very centralized, but very high tr throughput. And I think this, this future where there's various options that projects can decide, perhaps a blockchain games that is brand new might not need that much security, right? But a you know Uniswap-like that handles hundreds of billions of dollars probably needs very high security. And it's really good that there's an explosion of layer two and, and side chains that are emerging right now because it, it gives project a wide range of options to choose from to to pick their trade-offs and, and where they want to go in, in the future. I just want to interject real quick and say that we, if listeners, if you're not sure what Philippe is talking about with side chains and layer two and things like that, we did release episodes in the past. I believe they're episodes 16 and 18 and 20. Go back and listen to those so that you can get a background on, you know, what are some of the problems that we face with scaling on Ethereum right now, as well as what are some of the solutions that are out there that we've tried? You know, what are the pros and cons of all the different solutions, limitations, things like that? All right, just wanted to say that, Brayden. I'll let you. I'm sure you got you have a lot of thoughts, so I'll let you jump in. Oh no, I was I was just about to shout out our episode too. That's about it, though. You mentioned before the call that you were interested in that EIP for for gas and kind of. I'd actually like to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. So you're referring to EIP one five five nine? Yes, I believe it's about burning miner fees. Yeah, I can I can summarize. So EIP one five five nine is a change to the Ethereum protocol that is planned to happen this summer. Hopefully in July, a fork, the hard fork called London. It's not yet confirmed, but it's it's what's looking for it. Yeah, it's likely to be the case to happen then. And what this change to the protocol does is currently miners on Ethereum, the entities that secure the network earn the transaction fees from the users. So every time there's a transaction, there's a fee associated with that on Ethereum, and that fee goes to the miner that mines the block. And this is has been happening since the beginning of Ethereum. This is how Bitcoin works as well. EIP 1559 proposes that instead of burn, uh, instead of sending that transactions to the miners, instead that transaction fee gets destroyed, which means no one touches it. It means Ethereum is this disappears out of the supply. And this is something that at first might seem a bit like, I guess people would ask, why would you burn the fees if they're, they, they used to be, they, they're used currently to secure the network? Because it's important to realize that miners are paid, but the amount they're paid in order to secure the network. If miners were not paid, then the network would not be secure at all. And removing transaction fees to miners is reducing how much revenue goes to miners, which 
could translate in loss of security. So what what's the point? Why do we, we want to burn the transaction fees if it potentially reduces the security? Uh, there's a few reasons, but the main reason why EIP-1559 was proposed is for helping with the prediction of gas prices. And this is something that is very precise and very little people are are aware of this problem, but, and it's, it's true for all blockchains. All blockchains that have a limited number of transactions per second somehow needs to decide which transaction will, will go next. So even if your blockchain has a thousand transactions per second, what if you have enough demand for 5,000 transactions per second, right? You need to choose which transaction goes in first. And this is chosen by the miners by looking at how much fee each transaction pays. And one problem with this is that this price that miners are willing to accept to include the transactions in the chain changes very frequently making it very difficult for me as a user. If I say I want to pay X amount of fee to, for my transactions, currently that might be looking like this is the right price to pay based on the current demand. But however, 10 seconds later, there could be a, a thousands and thousands of transactions that come in that are bit overbidding me. And that means that they're willing to pay more for their transaction to be included. And suddenly I wanted to do a transaction right away and I priced it say at $5, but everyone else is coming in and say, we're willing to pay $10 for our transaction. And my transaction end up being pushed down uh, and executed perhaps hours later. And this is really, really bad user experience for users. It's especially when it comes to, I need to make an urgent trade. It leads to people overpaying for their transaction. It leads to a lot of a complicated negative experience for users. So the idea with EIP 1559 is, I won't go too much into the detail, but instead of having this auction because it's, it's often called a primary auction when you choose the gas price, the price of your transaction or the cost of your transaction you're willing to pay for. Instead, EIP-1559 allows users to know, it tells the users that there is a minimum fee that they can pay that will guarantee them to be their transaction to be included. So now instead of the users having to guess, I hope that this amount is sufficient for the network to include my transaction soon, the network tells the user, this is a minimum amount that pretty much guarantees that your transaction will be included. And this is much better because now the user, they know that this is how much they're, they're going to pay. And if they pay that amount, their transaction will be included. Sorry, that was a bit convoluted, but this is really the like primary reason of why EIP-1559 was created. No, this is great because one of the one of the big problems that I think, especially for like self custody assets, is that every every single user action has to be like initiated by the user, right? The user's got to sign a transaction in order to submit it. The user's got to like do all this stuff to interact with the blockchain in order to like play with trading cards and stuff like this, right? And so you know, with the Web 2.0, you if you want to like change something, you just throw it to a server and then the server will just change it and it'll always change it. Right. So yeah, that's why, yeah, this is very interesting because it, it kind of eliminates that problem because you can consistently like actually interact with the network. Yeah. So, so for people, for people at home, what we're kind of talking about here is some of the core issues that you might have interacting with blockchain networks. And this all flows back to UX all the way at the top and then some of these actually are some of the other incentives that get baked into the protocol. And what Ethereum is looking at doing is making an upgrade in the near future so that it's it's easier for users to predict their fees and so that they don't have to worry about the finality or, or following up on the transactions. And on Unstoppable Domains as an application, and I don't know, Philippe, if you guys have done this as well, we actually 
keep track of all of these transactions for the users so that we can hide <laughs> the complexity behind it. And then we try to make sure that they go through. And sometimes it takes a while because you have to keep following up on it. But just stepping back a little bit, framing it for our users, what's happening is there's constant innovation in this space on uh, the incentive models for these blockchains. And one of the updates uh, that's trying to go through right now on Ethereum is this EIP 1559. And it does a couple really interesting things that are pretty big for the space in general. So we just talked about how it improves UX for sending uh, gas. It also burns more Ethereum, right? So it actually burns more of the the coin at the base layer for Ethereum, which could potentially make Ethereum a better store of value. If people are out there, a lot of investors are taking a look at all these Ethereum protocols and products like Uniswap or SushiSwap, and they see how much money they make, and they try to get some sort of price to earnings multiple on these based on how much you know money that that protocol is making. Well, if Ethereum burns more, of its more of the fees that people pay, and it, it's kind of like a stock buyback. It's make a weird, a weird way around it. And so that could potentially make Ethereum a better store of value. Is another reason why EIP fifteen fifty nine is pretty good. And then another thing that I really like that I don't think enough people know about is that by having this gas market much more clear, it prevents gaming of the of the market from some participants, which actually happens quite a lot. Uh, and we also saw another proposal come up on Ethereum for gas prices. And anyone out, any user out there who's used some of these networks have seen really high gas prices recently. Specifically, Ethereum has been really bad. And they're actually talking about getting rid of this thing called gas token. So I was actually going to pass that over to you to Philippe. Do you have any opinion on gas token? Hopefully you're not a huge gas token holder because the Ethereum core devs are looking at ripping out gas token because it, what's happening, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit, but I'll get your opinion first. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that move as well? Because that's another big one that may be coming up. Yeah, so gas tokens, for those who are not familiar, gas tokens allow you to prepay gas at, at a current price for future usage. So it's a bit like if you saw that the gas at your corner store was low for your car and today, and you decide to go there and fill up your tanks and then put them in your garage. And then maybe you resell them in the future when it's the gas is a lot more expensive, or you decide to use them later as well, right? So it's it's the same for gas tokens on Ethereum. You can purchase transaction fees, so to speak, ahead of time while the fees are cheap in order to use them later when the gas, the transaction fees are more expensive. And this is something that has been around since 2017, perhaps earlier, but we're not as not as directly as as tokens. And it's been causing some issues because a lot of people are filling the the transactions with what are called gas token minting. They're creating or they're acquiring these gas tokens when the transaction fees are low in order to either sell them later when the gas are high or use them. And this is a bit inefficient because in the process of creating these gas tokens and using them, <laughs> there's there's uh, transaction fees that are incurred that are not it's not 100% usage. It's a bit like if you spilled, you spilled your gas every time you fill it up and, and used it uh, in the process. So it's not efficient and it ends up congesting the, the, the Ethereum quite a bit as well. So what people are proposing is basically killing the ability to make these gas tokens or the way people make them today. And EIP-1559, an interesting consequence of EIP-1559 is it actually allows a very efficient ETFs of gas prices, if you want, on, on Ethereum or ways to track or assets. You could create an asset that tracks the, the price of, of, of the transactions on Ethereum, the gas price, much more easily with EIP-1559. So if we remove the gas tokens 
as a proxy to or as a as an asset that tracks the gas price. With EIP five one five five nine, we can create much more efficient assets that track the gas price on Ethereum, and that people can start trading that instead of the actual gas tokens. Then uh, I guess my last question here: What do you think the probability is? that we'll see these updates for users, you know, this summer, like for both the you know, gas tokens, if they decide to remove that, and then also EIP 1559. I think EIP 1559 is more likely to happen this summer. For those who are not familiar, the only controversy around EIP 1559 is, is basically coming from the miners, where miners will lose a significant portion of their revenue. We're looking at something between... 10 to 40%, 50%, perhaps more, depending on the time of the year you're looking at. So a lot of miners are against, if I recall, there's about 60% of the current Ethereum miners that are against that changed for that reason. And I personally fully disagree with them. And if I can say it out here, I don't think it matters really what the miners want because they're providing a service to the network and it's the network and the community that chooses what the change should be and how it should, it should operate. But so that's why 1599 I think is going to happen this summer regardless of what the miners say. The one to kill gas tokens, this one is harder to say because while it, it is somewhat non, non-controversial, it's fairly new, which means not a lot of people have thought about it yet. And there could still be potential security issues that people might have not thought about yet. So it's, it's going to take a while for that EIP to go through the review process and for it to be like accepted and proposed in a, in a hard fork. So I would not say it's likely to happen in, the, in this summer. Interesting. Well, we saw a lot of people selling their gas token <laughs> or at least using it up or, or minting less of it because they got a little bit afraid. And there's this weird thing that's happening. And all these crypto networks have these weird game theory incentives. And what we were seeing was actually whenever the price of Ethereum or the gas cost for the price of sending transactions on Ethereum would drop a lot, a lot of people would go in and then they would use they would buy gas token because they were expecting that the price would go up in the future. And this was creating a floor on the gas price. And so like every time the gas price would come down, they would get a new floor and then it would go up to an even new high and then it would come down and get a, a higher new floor. And it's like, when could this end? Like, you know, gas token could go to infinity. It felt like for a couple of weeks there and it may start doing that again, at which point I hope people tune in because it really is a bad experience for users. And I agree with you on that, Philippe, where like we're trying to make these for people to use them. Right. And and then all these incentives that we have designed for miners, for speculators on gas token for whatever, they're there as second order effects, right? The users should definitely come before that or else it's not gonna work. I have another another interesting piece of inside baseball here on Ethereum is actually the, the difficulty bomb. Is that still in effect? And do you think that will have any type of setting some sort of hard deadline for people to come in and make some changes? And when should we expect that? The difficulty bomb is still in action, Is was never removed. I don't remember exactly the date where it's going to kick in, but I believe it's later this year. And for those who are not familiar, the difficulty bomb basically is, is a setting in the Ethereum chain where if it's not updated by consensus of participants, so via hard fork, it will make the Ethereum chain basically halt very, very quickly. So the transaction times are going to increase, tr- transaction per seconds will decrease. And the reason why it was built in in the first place is to ensure that the the default chain or the chain that does not commit to the new proposals or the new changes to the Ethereum 
that specific change does not win. So basically when there's a hard fork or modification to Ethereum, every single node in the world has to download the update and perform the update. If you don't update your node, you're stuck on the old Ethereum network. And in order to prevent the old Ethereum network to be bigger than the new Ethereum network, that's where the difficulty bump comes in and forces the old ones to eventually be forced to upgrade their nodes. Otherwise, that specific uh, network will become incredibly slow. So the interesting part here is that one of the fear around uh, EIP-1559 is, well, what if the miners basically stay on the current fork? They don't update to that. They're going to be supporting the default chain, which by extension also includes all the people that have not yet updated their node, right? Which could be a significant amount of nodes. Every hard fork requires a really large coordination that happens fast. And miners could be on the side of that is the, the largest majority for that reason. And the difficulty bump basically comes in and will force eventually those who objected to 1559 and stayed on the original version of Ethereum, will force them to try a coordination to say like, oh, well, we need to diffuse that difficulty bump somehow and the idea here is that if they're not able to, then that specific chain is going to die and the new chain is, is going to on the long term prevail. The chain that was able to reach consensus on changing the network. And the difficulty, I don't fully remember if it was going to happen, but should be reset at the same time as EIP 1559 takes hold. Got it. Okay. I want to move off of 1559 and talk more about right. scaling in general. So earlier, I, I don't remember if this was pre before we started recording or on the podcast, but you mentioned that you guys are building Horizon on sidechain right now. And as listeners know, you know, if you've gone back and listened to our series on scaling, you know, that's one of the many solutions to the problem that we're facing with scaling on Ethereum. And so I was just wondering, why did you guys choose sidechain as your solution and maybe talk about like some of you know the reasons why you chose that and also some of the limitations that you still face with that so in general if for those who are not familiar with sidechain versus layer two sidechains tend to be not as secure as the their parent chain or the chain they're connected to whereas layer twos in theory inherit a very security that's very similar to the main uh, their parent chain so if ethereum is the parent chain Ethereum's layer twos will, will have very strong securities and will be decentralized, and whereas sidechains tend not to be, or usually are not. So they have independent security from the parent chain. And the reason why we went with a sidechain called Polygon, previously known as Matic, is that currently there's no layer two on Ethereum that is ready for general computing, which means that there's no layer two right now on Ethereum that allows us developers to deploy all the tools and all the smart contract that we would otherwise deploy on Ethereum. They're, they're just not there. There's a few that are coming down very soon. There's Optimism, there's Arbitrum, which are a class of layer two called Optimistic Rollup. These are going to be coming down in the coming months. Optimism, I believe they said they would come down this month. So these are really interesting because they are layer twos. They have very strong security if they're built correctly and allow us to deploy all the contracts we would deploy on Ethereum to their network as well. However, for us, we don't want to take the risk that these layer twos are going to be brand new. They're not going to be well tested yet. They are very complex, which means a lot of things could go wrong, right? And we don't want to take that risk for the users. So we went with a sidechain polygon that has been up and running for uh, a bit more than a year or almost a year now. And for us, it's a trade-off where we know it has a lower security than Ethereum but the security keeps on increasing where there's hundreds of millions of dollars now that are secured by the network and it hasn't been an issue since it was has been up. So for us, 
who's basically starting a video game company, right? A, a video game. If we did have $50 million of assets in our video game, which would be incredible, we know that the network could handle it. If it came to a point where the value of our asset exceeds the amount of value that could be secured by the network, we also build the tools that makes it easy for us to migrate to another sidechain or layer two. And this is one great aspect with a lot of the Ethereum ecosystem is that most of the sidechains and layer twos are said to be EVM compatible, which means that everything that works for Ethereum works for these sidechains and layer twos. So for us, it took us perhaps 30 minutes to deploy everything to Polygon and all our tools were running. Everything was running. We didn't have to code anything. And this is a great power because it allows us to move our, our system from one chain to the other very, very quickly. Got it. So then from a user perspective, okay, so this is sort of like the technical things that you're working on from the company side. From a user perspective, you know, what are some of the changes that users are going to see, like lower gas fees, more usability? You know, you mentioned UX being the biggest problem that's yes. preventing people from entering into the space. So tell me, you know, from a user perspective, what changes are they going to see that's going to make their experience better? So for us specifically, because we will be on Polygon, we're actually going to cover all the gas costs for all our users. So our users will not pay for transactions. This is possible because we built a smart wallet for those who are familiar and smart wallet allows these kind of things. The Undistrict, another gaming project on, on uh, Polygon also pays for their users gas. So this is already a significant improvement. And the reason why we can do it is that the fees are incredibly low. We're looking at perhaps thousands of, thousands of transactions for maybe 10 cents. Right. So like us as a company, it's easy to justify that decision to pay for our users. Other nice improvement that using a sidechain like Polygon provides is that the time for the transactions to be included in the chain is much shorter, which means that if you commit an action, you try to transfer an asset, you try to buy it, uh, instead of taking 15 seconds to a minute to two minutes, it usually happens within a few seconds, uh, sometimes less than five seconds. Some sidechains, and especially layer twos, are coming with instant finality is said this would provide like an immediate feedback that your asset was transferred but side chains such as polygon have a finality of oh, not a finality but the block the time it takes for a transaction to be included is about five seconds so it does increase the the response time if you want to have your application got it and what are some of the limitations that users still face when using horizon right now so the biggest challenges for any sidechains or layer two is basically around the fact that sometimes users will have to bridge their asset from Ethereum to a sidechains and not all tools are available for sidechains yet. If this is not so much for like non-blockchain users, but if you're familiar with Etherscan, if you've used Ethereum in the past, this is not available for Polygon, for example. And Etherscan is very useful for the slightly savvy users that want to keep track of what's happening in their wallet. Other things like Zapper Finance, if you guys are familiar, is a is a tool that you can use to track all your assets and the value across all your applications on Ethereum. This is not available on Polygon yet. So there's a bunch of tools like this that are not yet available on Polygon. And there's a lot of liquidity that is not yet available on Polygon, which means that you can't trade everything yet on Polygon. You might have to go on Ethereum, do the trades, bring it back. So I would say these are like the major usability limitations. But there's also, and this is something I've mentioned a bit earlier, but the security is not the same as Ethereum. So there's always a risk that if Polygon Network has a fault in it or vulnerability, a users could lose a significant portion. Not to say that there's any non-vulnerability. I, 
I'm confident that it's going to be able to secure our game and therefore secure many other projects. But it's a risk that, you know, it's it's a risk that needs to be mentioned. It's not the same security as as Ethereum. Well, the good news is that solutions are being developed very rapidly. And so I'm just curious from your view, you know, if you were to look ahead 10 years from now, where do you see us being in 10 years with scaling on the blockchain? Whoa, 10 years. That's a, uh, yeah, that's a lifetime in blockchain. Well, I don't think scalability is going to be, is, is not an issue. It's not a theoretical issue that needs to be solved. It's a technical one. It's going to be solved eventually and people won't, won't think about it anywhere, anymore. In fact, I think there's more work to be done on things like uh, usability and and other things. And security or scaling scaling without compromising security is probably a big, uh, a more challenging one. But yeah, in ten years, I really don't think people will will talk about scalability as an issue anymore for blockchains. Similarly to how people don't talk about computing power per se as a as a bottleneck for like most applications. Some applications what might require more transaction throughput and perhaps could benefit for increase in scalability, but I don't think that's going to be very common in the future. For sure. Well, I can't wait for gas prices to not be in everyday conversation anymore. I'm really looking forward to that. All right. So this next segment we call Explain Your Tweet. This is where I go through your Twitter, which we all know by now that Matt is a huge fan of. And uh, I have pulled out a few interesting or cryptic or just funny tweets that I'm going to give you a chance to explain. So let's dive into that. The first one is from February 13th. You tweeted, collectibles don't need to be non-fungible to be valuable, right? So there's been a lot of talk about NFTs. That's all the rage these days. Talk about what you mean by that tweet. So NFT stands for non-fungible tokens, meaning assets that are unique. NFTs do have limitations, especially when it comes to price discovery, meaning that it's very difficult to know what the price of an NFT is, right? Because there could be millions of them. Some of them are similar. Some of them are different. Why is the green hair color more expensive than the yellow hair color? As a user, that that's, that adds a lot of complexity, right? But something sometimes, instead of having purely unique assets, you can make them slightly fungible, and that tends to to help a lot with non-fungibility uh, for price discovery. For example, instead of having, you know, a hundred dragons that are different colors and different attributes, well, you could have ten dragons and ten classes of dragons, and each dragon has ten copies of it, right? So you could have a blue dragon, a red dragon, and there's ten blue dragons and a ten ten red dragons, and suddenly the price discovery becomes a lot easier because each blue dragon is basically the same as the other blue dragons, and you you end up having more transactions and and uh, sales for it, which makes the price easier to discover. And one of the greatest example of collectibles that are that are fungible is Unisocks, right? Unisocks, for those who are not familiar, is socks, literal socks that are, were created by Uniswap. And there's only about 320, I believe, that exist in the world or, or that can possibly exist. And then the first one were sold for maybe 10 bucks. And currently they're worth $160,000 each, right? And people think of Unisocks as collectible, but every Unisocks is identical to every other. They're not distinguishable. There's no like, I have the Socks number one, I have the Socks number two, I have the Socks number three. It's just, I have some Unisocks. And so they're said to be fungible with respect to that. There's not a lot, right? So the fungibility, so to speak, is not as high as other types of assets, but it's still a, people could still consider it a collectible. So when I say NFTs don't need to be non-fungible to, to, to have value, sometimes you can make them slightly fungible 
adding decimals, making a few copies of them. And that tends to solve a lot of the user experience complications that NFTs bring to the table. Got it. Yeah, the Unisox thing is pretty crazy. And then the other tweet I wanted to call out, this is from February 14th. That is obviously Valentine's Day. You tweeted, my NFT Valentine gift did not impress. So what was the gift? Well, the, I don't want to say exactly the gift, but yeah, it was it was an NFT that I purchased and I did show it to, to my wife in the morning. And yeah, there was pretty much no reaction to it. So... Probably won't do that again. Was it was it like a piece of artwork or? Yeah, yeah, that, that I bought on Rarible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> got it, got it. Okay, put it well, on the wall, so. yeah, I put it in a digital photo frame, put it on the wall, and then you can look at it every day. Yep. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much, Philippe. This was a very fascinating conversation, and I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did as well. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, also where they can go to learn more about Horizon Games, and how, how do they sign up? How do they play your blockchain games? What are like the first steps that they can go through to do that? Yeah, so uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me, my DMs are open on, on Twitter, so that's at phabcd my Twitter. So go there, send me a DM. I would, happy to, to be, I would be happy to chat. And for those who are interested in learning more about Skyweaver, and we have actually a few more products that we will reveal this year in the coming months with Skyweaver, associated with Skyweaver, just go on skyweaver.net. We have a mailing list there that you can subscribe to. And we are going live very soon on mainnet. And once we will, then you're going to receive a, a email for it. Perfect. Well, thanks again so much, Philippe. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Matt and Brayden, for co-hosting this episode with me. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we will be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. See you around. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something I've said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, download the podcast, and share this episode on social media with your network. This helps other people find us. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. We can continue the conversation on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, or ideas to me at Matthew E. Gould. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.